Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you get to hear how to feel happy, balanced, and worthwhile. How to make that lonely ache vanish and feel empowered, confident, and secure. I'm Lauren Abrams, and I get to help you feel that magic again since going through my own dark night of the soul by chatting with incredible leaders, healers, and elders who give us their message of hope after overcoming challenges of their own. Today, we're talking to the beautiful Buddhist spiritual leader, Spring Washam. Spring's a well-known meditation teacher, author, and visionary leader. She's the author of A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage and wisdom in any moment. She grew up in a violent neighborhood raised by a single parent. She was introduced to Buddhism and its message of mindfulness, and her life unfolded. And today, she spreads the message of living in the present as a meditation and Dharma teacher at Woodacre Spirit Rock Meditation Center, as well as teaching meditation retreats, workshops, and classes worldwide. She's here discussing today how you can overcome stress, fear, and anxiety, how to practice self forgiveness, and how to help you discover your life purpose and make your own inner calling come true. She also answers some basic questions that you may have from time to time to help you on your spiritual path. I'm so honored to have her here with us today. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope Spring Washam. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. First, can you, I'm, I, I do kind of want to get into like how you escaped your upbringing and you just happen into like this meditation retreat and how your calling found you, which is what I believe happens to so many of us. Can you describe what you do as a Dharmic teacher? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I can, well, I'll, first I can describe more of what I do now as a Dharmic yeah, teacher. Yeah. I'll, go, I'll go back a little bit in time. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what we do now pre-COVID obviously was, and I still do a lot of it, was we lead retreats primarily at Spirit Rock Meditation Center where I'm on the teacher's council and we teach meditation, mindfulness, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and Vipassana, which are all the same words of saying insight meditation. And so I, for many years, led retreats for anywhere between five to 10 days. And they're really beautiful in silence, held on the land. And then also I started a center with a group of other teachers in downtown Oakland, where we were teaching all kinds of insight, meditation, compassion, mindfulness classes for many years. So I had a hub between downtown Oakland and then out in the beautiful hills outside San Francisco at a residential center. And so what we did was we really taught a lot of Buddhist-based philosophy, psychology, the teachings of uh, wisdom and compassion you know, emotional intelligence, how to just be with what's happening and deal with our crazy stressed out minds and work with our emotions skillfully and open the heart and learn how to be in the body. So all the things that are very popular right now have been happening there on that land for over 20 years, more really. And so yeah, that's kind of what I do. And I write about it and I teach about it and I practice it. More importantly, as a Dharma teacher, I always practicing, practicing, practicing. And that's, it's been an interesting journey. So that's kind of like my role. And I'm also doing uh, other things in there, a little shamanism, the writing books, you know, it's like, it's kind of like a big play, but that's generally what we try to do is just help people learn how to be present with an open heart and wisdom. I part of my daily morning practice is to have an open heart and an open mind. That's in its simplest form yeah, uh, as part yeah. of my meditation. I don't think my friends are sick of me, but anyway, uh, that's, that is part of my morning mantra. And how did you start out in this? 
Yeah, so I grew up in East Long Beach and it was all this chaos right on the Compton border. And, you know, it was kind of like that classic, it was almost archetypal, you know, like against the odds and the mom who can't deal with children and the father who leaves and there's no money. And, you know, it was like all these uh, hindrances and obstacles and difficulties, right? And I can, I honestly just look at it as such a profound teaching. Yeah, it breaks one's heart to experience that. But what happened when I was a teenager, I actually had to move out of my mother's house. She married a very violent partner at some stage. And so I, as I was sort of going out onto my own and living with friends and uh, family members and different things, I got very interested in psychology. The first step was, you know, it was kind of like the new thought movement captured me. And I remember I was 16, 17, going to Agape in a church in LA. For those of you who are in Los Angeles, the spiritual center, Reverend Michael Bethwick. I got really involved in that, just trying to understand my mind. It's funny. I always knew there was something wrong with my thinking. And the way other people were thinking, I was like, there's something our thinking, we have problems with our thinking, you know, so as an, as really young, you know, rather you just call it this, you know, innate sense of your path and your dharma already. I was very drawn early to living a spiritually based life. I just, I resonated. So I read and read, and then it led me as I got older to studying meditation in a Hindu tradition. And then I fell upon insight meditation and just showed up uh, out of the blue uh, and ended up meeting Jack Cornfield, a Buddhist based teacher. And, and uh, it all opened from there. It's like, I found my, I found what I was looking for and I just entered that path and never really got off of that. <laughs> It's, it's so interesting because one of my trips to Bali, I met a 17 year old and her senior year, she lived with me and my, my kids, my family. <laughs> I thought, oh, she's going to be such a good, she's my kids. They're going to, it's all going to rub off on them, but it doesn't, you know, if, if that's your ilk, I can't think of the right verbiage at the moment, but then that's who and what you are. <laughs> Yeah, like but, I've never been able to rub off on my mother. Yeah. It feels like oh whatever, no, no, you no. know, it's been a year. So I realize it's just innate in the person's heart. You just have this knowing of who you are, but you have to work through everything to kind of get it. Yeah. Come into full balance and walk your path, you know, with all right. the extra traumas and all the things that happen along the way just become kind of, you know, they're the rocks and the path that we, we climb, you know, and they, they do give us a sense of a, a resiliency. Yeah. You get there when you get there. You get there when you get there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I asked the questions because a lot of people have never heard these terms, but they want, yeah. they want to know and, and they're seeking and they have this, there's so much sense of dis-ease, just uncomfortability and, and knowing there's more, but not knowing what it is or how to get there and, and what to do right now. So what would you tell somebody going through that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the last couple of years, I've, everybody's had their dark night of the soul moment. If you had it, it may be coming. I don't think anyone's getting out of this without just a little bit of the death rebirth, because it's just that time. It's in our astrology. It's in the culture. It's in the, you know, and I think that it's if someone's entering into that period where nothing's working out and there's deep dissatisfaction and anxiety and stress and unhappiness that I really consider those moments doorways. You know, I always say our unhappiness is a heavenly messenger. 
don't miss it, right? Because when things aren't working or it means that the road that we're on isn't really the right path. It's like a, it's a pivot moment, right? Where we look, we, we find higher ground. So the dis-ease, the uncomfortability, a lot of people in those moments, they seek a, a spiritual practice, you know, often out of a complete hell realm, we, we, we go, okay, I'm going to do, you know, it's like a 12 step rock bottom is the awakened moment. You know, it's like, okay, I can't get any worse than this. I got to go. I got to get a different way of looking at this. I got to take a different approach here. So I think that that's really it, that, that the dis-ease is really, it's a cosmic disease, dissatisfaction. It's like, that's the heart of the Buddha's you know, message, like this deep dissatisfaction, because we know there's more. And so we just start to slowly walk the path, we start to work with our emotions, right? We start to become more conscious. So don't be afraid. I always tell my students in Oakland, I used to say this all the time, don't shut down the breakdown. Something's trying to unravel. We got to we got to, you know, when they say when you're, when you're falling dive, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. we got to learn how to dive into it. Now that is where the practices come in. How do we do that without, you know, crashing and burning? That's where all the mindfulness and having a daily practice and, and reflecting gives us the strength and the, the tools to dive without hitting, you know, the concrete. I, I always tell people, okay, I was taught that feelings peak for five minutes. So I think for me, it's like, I want to get through it. So I, I can do that five minutes I can do. So I want to yeah. lean in and get to the other side. So yeah, that, that exactly. helps me if it's delineated. I don't know. Well, it gives you a capacity to open just for those five minutes. Once you do it for five minutes, you could do it for 10, right? You're like, okay, well, I survived. It's that initial shock of like, I have to feel this. Yeah. And then if you say just five minutes, like, okay, okay. And it, yeah. it tricks your mind into becoming more comfortable feeling difficult things. Yeah. And there's no, I mean, there's no choice. The only way through is through. That's what, that's what the, I think that's a really wise point is that we don't really have a choice when we wake up in the morning, you know, if there's a anger rises or we just have to work with it skillfully. Sometimes these energies just bubble up. Nobody plans on having a dark night of the soul. That's the, they're planning the opposite, you know? the best year of my life. You know, nobody, nobody sets out for that. So it just happens. It's just causes and conditions, you know? Yeah. And well, the Woodacre Spirit Rock Meditation Center, I, I mean, that's the place with all the woods and the like, right. It just yeah. looks so phenomenal there. Did, how did you find that? Or is that it found you again? Or? Well, it, it like, a, it was about, over 23, 24 years ago, it was in the process of being built. I went to a retreat led by the Spirit Rock Meditation community. And the, at that time, the land was still being built out. They were still building. They're almost finished with the temple and, you know, the meditation center, that the, the room that can fit like 150 people, 200 people. And so when I first met the founder, Jack Cornfield, I was like, okay, great. So I moved close by, you know, I was living in Los Angeles. I was like, okay. And I started studying there. That became a place where I had like a school and then I would do retreats and I started doing trainings there and the land and, you know, people who want to look up spiritrock.org. It's just one of these beautiful pieces of properties, like 500 acres, 
in mountains and, and it's a place where you go and you do mostly silent residential retreat where you learn the art of practice, sitting and walking. So it's just a beautiful place to, to check out for those who are you know, interested in doing a residential meditation retreat where it's a little more focused internal. And people that haven't done silent retreats, the thought of uninterrupted silence, what do you tell them? Well, I always laugh about that part because that's the thing that a lot of people feel afraid of. So even though you take a vow of silence, there's all, you know, there's Dharma teachings happening and instructions and, and then, you know, the mind is always so talkative. It's like, it's never quiet in one's mind. There's always a narrator going on 24 seven. And actually the thing about it is that a lot of people felt they were terrified. And then that became the place the, the practice where they found the most joy because they didn't have to perform. They didn't have to be anyone. They could let go of sort of this outer role and then just be, they'd have to take care of anyone. They could just be in their experience. Right. And they found that the silence, although, you know, initially a shock was this and tremendous joy. And some were sad when they had to go back to talking. Mm -hmm. Others were ready. You know, it's just where you are. So, it, of course, we get afraid of doing anything we've never done, especially if it's psychological or spiritual. We, we project, well, what could go wrong or, you know, but mostly people had a lovely experience. It was something unique to do that. Yeah, I, I was just flashing on a rabbi was telling me his first time at first when ever, he was going in the bathroom and he wanted to say, oh, no, you first and, and not being able to say that. Yeah. Or, you know, washing hands at a communal place or, you know, there were certain times when it was, it took a while to get used to just things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and then it got dancing. easier. Yeah. yeah. It, it, you start dancing with each other and you're, yeah, yeah. you're, mm -hmm. you're smiling, you're Absolutely. just not, you know. You tell, I don't remember if I was reading it in your book or in, maybe it was one of your teachings about being in India. This is when you were much younger. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And seeing people just doing in, in prayer for very long periods of time with all your friends. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah. And do you want to talk about that and just the feelings that came over you? And then you were really, and, and then your friends just start going spring. <laughs> oh yeah. I remember. Okay. Look a fierce heart. Yeah. I tell this story. <laughs> about going to India on pilgrimage. And we went to Bodh Gaya, where yeah. it's kind of like the Buddha stupa and the Bodhi tree. And it's like yes. this big park. And I decided to offer a thousand prostrations. Yeah, which are kind of like sun yeah, salutations for yeah, yeah. all the yogis out there. But they're a little harder in a way, well, no, they're about, they're like a sun citation, but you're going all the way down and you press your head. And, and I just, it came over me because at, out at this place in, in Bodh Gaya, there's all these Tibetan practitioners, really Buddhists from all over the world, the Zen nuns, and then you have all these Tibetan practitioners. And I, I think of it like a spiritual, I don't know, it was like a spiritual fair or something <laughs> people were there every day and then and Tibetans love to do prostrations in front of the Bodhi tree and they take refuge and they they do it so I was seeing hundreds of people and I would see women in their 80s these Tibetan women you know and they would have their beads and their malas and they'd be praying and I just 
it was so beautiful that I thought, well, you know, they say it's a great purification. Here I am at the, the Bodhi temple making prayers to become enlightened, you know, and heal all beings and be great Bodhisattva. So I did go out there and it's harder than it looks, you know, I thought, oh, this is so easy, you know, but after a couple hours, <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, so over the course of a couple of days and it was fun as my friends were circumambulating the park. There's a kind of like a, a walkway around and there's a park in the middle with a tree in it. So it's a, it's a really big area. And so every time they were walking by, they would see me prostrating and they would say, go Springers. <laughs> and they, were, they were funny. It was just funny because I was having these very profound moments and then I would hear them being like, go girl, you know, yeah. it was just breaking out like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm having my sacred moment here. Yeah. Kind of like a, a there's, there's the buzz kill, the spiritual kill or something, you know, like, but then it was so funny later, you know, becomes all part of it to not take yourself too seriously. Right. Right. You know, exactly. like, yeah. okay. Yeah. You're frustrating and here they are and it's all connected. <laughs> I, I kind of like that ghost springers and it also, it's a good reminder. You're not alone. You got friends. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And they would say when I'd be really hot and tired. So. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Do you have a morning routine? Do you have a practice that you do every morning? Yeah. Usually I try to get up and I try to have a sense of finding stillness. Lately, my practice has really involved being outside and sitting outside and walking outside and being and just finding that stillness you know, so in the morning, I'll do a short practice. And then I like to do a little bit more in the afternoon, I'll do like a walking and a movement, you know, so sometimes mornings is hard for me, because I tend to jump right into the stream. Right now, you know, ideally, it's so great to have a morning practice. I mean, I just want to encourage people. But lately, my rhythm has been more of like an afternoon and later in the day to it's like a, a pause moment and a reset, you know, almost like I let go and then start again, like mid afternoon, early evening. I found myself having an accountability partner for the morning meditation. And I gave myself permission to do 10 minutes first thing in the morning. I have to feed the dogs first though, because even though there's a doggy door, they will act out. <laughs> I'll say, but so not pick up my phone, not do anything and just do a 10 minute. And I started doing that. And it's just been so good for me to make sure I do that. Oh, I love I mean, morning practices. I absolutely think it's the joy. I think I just every few months, you sort of find a different rhythm with timing, you know? Yeah, it's just so, school will be out soon. Although both my kids are here now. So not that I mean, teenagers sleep in, so it's it's not an issue with little yeah. kids. That then it was really an issue when they were little it, to find that being able to meditate again. It was really difficult. I mean, it just ebbs and flows. And I wonder why do people have such a hard time meditating? I, to me, I equate it to exercise. The two things that make me feel the best are meditation and exercise. Yet, why wouldn't I just be going at it all the time with both? Yeah, well, some people are, you know, they have a passion for it. There's definitely a movement. But for a lot of people, it's just so outside of their, you know, to sit quietly and follow the breath, they might have religious feelings about it, or they might just have, you know, they don't understand that sometimes it's a practice that you learn, they imagine you sit down and you feel 
peace and immediately, you know, there's a lot of kind of misunderstandings about what it is and and how it helps. And, you know, we're so mentally, our culture goes so fast that the pause, it's very hard for people to know how to do that. You know, we're very just like uh, a little bit frenetic, you know, our energy, we go, we go. So the idea of turning off is hard at first for people. And so it's not for some people that grow up where that's not a value, you know, they're going against a lot of kind of programming that they already have. Like, no, I just go, 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 go. I don't stop, you know, and feel. So how do you explain to people what the benefit is? Well, you know, I only really talk to people about the benefits who are genuinely curious. I'm not sort of like a meditation teacher out on the corner trying to make people slow down and be... People yeah. hate that, you know, that, that. I remember I used to do that with my family. And then I remember a, a wise teacher said, uh, spring, you know, you don't have to go around trying, you know, just, just be a Buddha inside, <laughs> you know, just, just, that's all, that's all that anyone wants to do. So, so yeah, when people, I mean, I often tell people that it's a, the practice itself is an art. It's a training. You know, if you haven't been to the gym your whole life and you go in there and try to lift 50 pounds and, you know, five minutes of walking in, you're going to hurt yourself probably. You're not going to feel right. You know, so like all things, mindfulness and the developing of mindfulness is like a muscle. It's learning more and more. It's an art to meditation. It's not just instant, you know. Instant meditation. No, it's it's like a it's a dance that you're doing and you're learning what it means to be in my body. What does that really mean? Wow. Okay. What does it mean to sit and feel? So I think for people, they need to start out and be patient, which is not a word that people like, right? I mean, this is like you gotta look at like the Zen masters path. You gotta, you, you know, people want instant results, but you can't immediately see a difference within a few weeks of of practice, but you have to give it that, you know, give it a 30 day period where you practice and you have to be comfortable working with energies. The two main energies that come are sleepiness and the, and it's cousin restlessness (laughs) (laughs) or brother, sister, whatever, however you want to refer to it. You have to be comfortable managing energies. One minute you're falling asleep, the next minute you want to scream and get up, the next minute you're falling, you know, and so you're learning energy, you're learning how to be. And it's a and and it's for people who are interested because it sounds so simple, but the effects are so profound. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the that's the mysterious part. How does this help so much? You know, it's like, oh my gosh. So you have to. Try it for yourself, you know, for people who are, are really interested, you know? Absolutely. How long do you recommend when someone starts? How long would you say they should start? Five minutes, 10? Yeah, anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes, I think is really great because, you know, a lot of times people are using apps, which I think are really great in the beginning, you know, Calm app or Insight Timer or 10% Happier. All of these are just, you know, apps designed that are easy to help you get in the unplug. The hardest thing about meditation is actually putting your phone down and sitting on your cushion. Yeah, yeah right. That's the hardest thing to do is just to stop, actually. Yeah. Most time when people sit down and they start to feel, they might actually enjoy it more than they realize, right? They might sit longer. 
But I would aim at the very, for very beginners. And even if you've been practicing for a long time, you might need like a reboot, 10 to 15 minutes practice, put away all your phone stuff, computer, find a place that's quiet. If you can, not everyone can. And, and you just begin to sit and just feel your breath, feel your body. It's utterly simple, but it's complex because, you know, our minds get involved. <laughs> so it seems really hard. But actually, you're doing something very simple. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have challenge to it. Right. The best thing I was ever told was you can't do it wrong. It's impossible. (laughs) And people always think they're doing it wrong because they have this idea in their head. And that's why I say, okay, first, let's get rid of the idea of whatever you believe that should happen or what it could be like. And we we just meet the mind where it is. If we're sad, we open to sad. If we're bored, we open to boredom. If we feel lonely, we open to loneliness. If we're afraid, we feel fear. It's about moving through. It's not about trying to escape. And that's a big shift that starts to happen over time. Yeah, absolutely. I The benefits are amazing. <laughs> that's yeah. all I, can, I, I, I mean. It's, it's hard to, you know, it's mental health. It's a difference between the quality of our mind, our mental space gets better. And every, everyone lives here, you know, pretty much we have our physical house, but we live here. And it's like, well, is there graffiti and old beer cans and cigarette butts everywhere in there? Or are we like, is our mental space like, you know, meditation? I, another teacher, I just recently posted this online meditation is like going to the beauty parlor for the inside. Yeah, that's good. You know, because that's the only way I can really describe it, but you know, we can point, but everyone has to if you're interested, experiment. Yeah. Now you do your retreats to Peru. What are those for? What do you do there? So my retreats in Peru are a mix of Buddhist-based wisdom and Amazonian practices. We do shamanic practices. So my retreats are a blend. So we work with shamans and healers and meditation and yoga all in the jungle in Terrapoto, Peru. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I've done... Yeah, that that's pretty incredible. I I've done some in Bali, mm-hmm. different with different healers, but not Peru. So that that sounds amazing. Now, when you get stuck and have roadblocks, do you have people you follow? What do you do when you're having a hard time? When I'm having a hard time, yeah, there's always people that I find inspirational. I think you know I'm really lucky because I have so many different types of teachers. You know, if I'm blocked in one area, I go to this person. There's not really one teacher who fits all. You know, if I'm blocked in my energy body, I go to this person. If I'm blocked with my writing, I go to this person. If I'm blocked with my teaching, I go to this person. If my meditation is just falling apart, I go to my main meditation teacher. You know, so I'm lucky because I have a whole community that I can kind of reference and be like, okay, well, this, you know, it's kind of like, you know, and that's ideal is to have a support system, you know, you wouldn't really ask your, you know, your therapist about your yoga practice, you'd probably go to your yoga teacher, and your therapist, you might work with them in a specific area. So I feel like I have all these great people that I can pull on, and I'm always utilizing them. I don't think I ever get, you know, I'm always a student too. This is, I'm with everyone in the journey. Yeah, I never feel like I've reached a level where I can say, okay, I'm done. And now I'm gonna sit here, you know, no, I'm engaged. And you're working on a book. uh, You have a book coming out on Harriet Tubman in February. Yes. 
how did now how did that come about? That seems yeah, that seems a little random out of sight. Right. Of yeah, it does seem random. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems ra- yeah, random's the perfect yeah, word. I think, yeah. Well, I, I all I can say is that in May of last year, I started having all these dreams about Harriet Tubman. And this has been sort of like the whole Black Lives Matter movement and all the shootings. And it was just such an intense time for all of us. Yep, you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I started having all these dreams and visions about Harriet Tubman. And then it seemed so appropriate to write a book about her, the Dharma of Harriet Tubman. I started doing a class online and the class had like hundreds of people were coming from all over the world. And there was That's this very practice. cool. Yeah. It kind they were of coming, like, I mean, that they were coming from all over the world. That's yeah, they were coming from all over the world. I would have people in England and France and Ireland and all kinds of people in California and throughout the country. And it was just so amazing. And so it was really fueled by Harriet Tubman during that time. And to think about what does it mean to conduct, you know? And I got passionate around the history and all these things that were meaningful that I hadn't I think, you know, we write the things that we need to know. Absolutely. We write yeah. it. Oh, I love that. To ourselves. Yeah. So I, I need to understand Harriet's journey. Oh, I love that. Yeah. that That's, I'm writing what I, this didn't start, this started as a book for, and it was my quest. This was, this was all about my quest. And it was so exactly. rich that I was like, I have to share this. So I did a exactly. And it's turned into a podcast, which I just love. And if I can help people along the way, that's that's the point. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's why we do these things. It's like, you know, because in a way we're just, we're all interconnected. So what's healing you is healing us and vice versa. Yeah. And I love when our, our passion becomes, you know, the purpose and then other people are affected in a positive way. Yeah. That's that, really what that, it's all about. Serve. Yeah. Have you seen your relationships change after COVID? I have. I think I think COVID has done a lot of things. The people that I was close to, I'm closer. The people I dearly loved, it, the bonds grew. The people that I maybe had a more distant relationship with, it seems like that also grew. Like you know, there was like the separation between. Yeah, it was like a it was like a line in the sand or something, you know. And, and then the appreciation for seeing the gifts and just appreciating my wise community on a whole nother level. I mean, just gratitude for the beauty of my friendships and my spiritual community. I mean, in the Buddhist tradition, one of the jewels is uh, a word that's called Sangha, which translates as beloved community. And you take refuge in your spiritual friendships. Actually, your friendships can pull you through a lot of dark times. It's medicine in a way. Yeah. Right. Friendships, intimacy, closeness. I think a lot of people suffer right now because this wall that COVID has put up between us and others, you know, not touching, not communicating, not, you know what I mean? I think a lot of people suffer in the isolation. Oh, definitely. Uh, We need community. How do you spell Sangha? Sangha is S-A-N-G-H-A. And that word is a Pali word. And it translates as beloved community in the in the Buddhist tradition, we take refuge in Buddha, which is our, our awakened nature, the Dharma, 
which is the path, the teachings, mindfulness, meditation. And then the third jewel is Sangha. And so for me, I've really taken refuge in that third jewel as, you know, everyone has their little bubble and, and just, and just how we can really support each other, you know, and I, I just, yeah. So my relationships got much more depth to them. Oh, that's beautiful. I I really love that. And well, in the blue zones where people live the longest, Mm-hmm. It's because of community that that I is that. I, when I say live the longest, live the longest and the healthiest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. don't live long if without a quality of life. I wouldn't. Yeah. 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 So do you have a message of hope that you would want to give? Yeah, I guess I would say that for people who are coming on, who, as we mentioned at the beginning, who are feeling like the bottom's falling out, you know, like. I don't know what I'm doing or what's happening because so many people are in this reboot. You know, maybe they lost their job and they don't even want to go back to what they were doing, right? There's such a, I think, a shift for so many people coming through this deep questioning. So I would really encourage people to, to the, the word hope, which I love your 52 weeks of hope, is, is really about faith. Faith that you will arrive at the destination and that everything is really happening for us to move to, you know, a higher place, right? To move to where who we really are. And I, I like to use the word faith, but I know that means a lot of different things to a lot of people, but it, it means a faith that there's, there's an intelligence that's moving us forward, no matter how bleak it looks now, no matter how many obstacles, <laughs> you know, money, no money, no relationship, relationship, you know, wherever we are, it's just to have faith that and to trust that there is a higher intelligence that is orchestrating our life. And that, you know, that's one thing I definitely learned from Harriet Tubman. Man, she had some serious faith all the time. I was like, I got a realization <laughs> of that, actually. Like, no matter what the obstacle is, you know, you, you can keep trusting and keep in deep prayer and praying to whatever, whoever, Panchamama, God, Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, Wonkan Tonkin, divine creator, you know, the universe, whatever energy that you call to keep, to trust in the deep process of faith and prayer. We pray to the wisdom of what is guiding our lives to keep guiding me. And I think there's something really powerful about prayers right now. I feel like they're being heard for people. And so for those who, who, who are just where the bottom's falling out. And I know that feeling faith that it it will change faith and and, and praying, calling on your ancestors, calling on, you know, all the great beings and the divine mother and to hold that as a way to help you move forward. There's a lot of power in that. So I would offer that. That just comes now. That's what I do. Yeah, that was amazing. (laughs) And how about somebody that's just struggling to get out of bed? I don't mean clinical depression, but that just that malaise where I don't feel like getting out of bed today. Do you have something you'd say to that person? Yeah. And I know a lot of people have that feeling because it feels like nothing is different. Every day we wake up, it's COVID. (laughs) We go to bed, it's COVID. You know, it feels like there's this huge stuckness, you know, like, or there's a boulder on the track and there is literally, you know, there, there really is. 
So it makes people not want to get up because it's the same day for some people. It's the same. I did this yesterday. I've done this 365 days or 400 days now. I don't want to keep doing this day over and over. Again, it's, you know, that sometimes you have to fight, you know, when you're in that state, right? To find gratitude. What do I have? Gratitude's a game changer. Absolutely. It's a game changer. We go Absolutely. from what we hate to what actually is great. And to do a gratitude practice, then if you can't get out of bed, then grab a pen and paper and write five things in your moment that you are grateful for. Even if it's just, you know, your honey nut Cheerios in the kitchen or whatever you have, you know, or your bed that you can lie on that's, you know, there, or, you know, you just start with gratitude. Yeah. I'm right there with you. I've already, I've been doing gratitude lists that I exchanged for over a decade. Daily. Oh my God. Gratitude. It really shifts you from suffering to that's all going to work out. Look, yeah. I have so much. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a light bulb on, you know, yeah. looking at again, our mental world here switches, you know, into a different mindset and we attract goodness when we're grateful. We attract more yeah. of what we want actually. Oh, definitely. It changes the frequency. Complete frequency change. Reboot. Immediate. Yeah, 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 totally. I love that. Well, thank you so much. I've been looking forward to talking to you and it was beyond my, you know, what I was hoping. So thank you so much for being a guest today on 52 Weeks of Hope. Oh, thank you so much, Lauren. This is really fun. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and take with you Spring's messages of connection, expansiveness, and love. Such wonderful messages to take into the week ahead. Be sure to tune in next week when former crisis and hostage negotiator, relationship, and success builder, Jeremy Nix joins us. As a wellness and success coach, Jeremy explains how you can pivot and have success no matter what your current circumstances. He also tells why it's important to put the spotlight on others and make them the hero. He talks about what makes a good relationship and how to have one. It's so interesting because he builds upon his hostage negotiation techniques in his success builder career. And it's just was so much fun to talk to him. So you want to tune in next week for that. Be sure to tune in tomorrow morning in the Hope Club on Clubhouse and get your day started right. And let's all chat and get to know each other in Clubhouse. We're also on Facebook, the Facebook group page. You can go to the website at 52weeksofhope.com for all of our information on there, 52weeksofhope.com. I also want to thank uh, a few people for all the fabulous reviews that we've been getting. Lisa Weiner, thank you so much. Texas, get her done. Bone Doctor and Allie Levy, thank you so much for the fabulous positive reviews. Did you guys love Amberly's episode last week? I just thought it was amazing. You can give me your feedback right there by leaving a review or on the website 52weeksofhope.com. So please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a positive review, and send us feedback on the website 52weeksofhope.com. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening.